You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Good day, Real Vision audience. We have uh, an incredible guest uh, here with us today, both a friend uh, of mine as well as uh, a company that I'm invested in. I'm sure a lot of you that are following the uh, the crypto uh, world uh, are going to really enjoy hearing from one of the original gangsters of crypto, Peter Smith, the person that is the founder and CEO of Blockchain is here with us. Welcome, Peter. Hey, how are you doing, Kyle? Good. Doing great. Uh, Peter's in New York at the moment. Um, I'm in Dallas, and and we're here to kind of unpack what's been going on in the marketplace, how Peter's company and specifically blo- that blockchain is going uh, is navigating the explosion in the world of crypto, as well as more philosophical questions that I can't wait to dig into with Peter, as far as how private crypto is going to. He thinks it's going to interact with. Uh, public central bank digital currencies and and uh, sovereign instruments. So, Peter, if you don't mind, let's kind of kick it off and talk about real quickly uh, just the last two or three years and how you've seen it evolve with your business, specifically uh, blockchain's wallets, blockchain's business, and how blockchain has, has looked at the, the crypto world and how it's harnessed it so beautifully so far. But talk about just a year ago, I know where you and, and your business were and where it is today are literally night and day different from the perspective of free cash flow, revenues, it's money is just pouring in. How are you guys handling this meteoric growth and, and how do you see the private crypto markets today? Yeah, thanks. So I think the, the biggest difference is probably uh, the evolution of the market from being purely retail driven to being retail and institutionally driven. So if you go back a year ago, I think revenue across the entire crypto space is probably you know 98% uh, retail or consumer derived. And now there is a really growing institutional segment in crypto. In our business, about 60 to 65% of our revenue is from retail, but another 30 to 35% of it is from institutional. And I think that's a huge shift and really healthy for the market. You're seeing a lot deeper crypto market around the world, sort of in every major crypto asset. And I think that's really positive for the space. I think that's what makes the space different today than it does a year ago. In terms of our business, you know, we began monetizing the business about 22 months ago. And you know, after focusing on uh, growth for a long time, that monetization curve has been really um, quite, well, I mean, really phenomenal. Quite parabolic last year. Yeah, quite parabolic. So, you know, this year we'll do, you know, somewhere between one and a half and two and a half million in growth billion, sorry, in gross revenue. Uh, and we'll, you know, make more, you know, pre-tax profit than most major financial institutions from the traditional markets. Um, and so the business is, you know, very, very different than it was two or three years ago on that front. I think the other thing that is kind of special about where we're at as a company within the crypto market is that we do have 
a pretty dominant consumer and institutional business. Most companies in crypto really are one or the other. And we you know, are, are very fortunate to have both very kind of large, stable revenue lines. The institutional business, while it's a minority of our revenue, is profitable enough that it could pay for the entire uh, operating costs of the company globally, and we would still be profitable. Uh, and so at this point, you know, we have three revenue lines that are big enough to carry the whole company to profitability. And I think that diversity of revenue is really special, um, not just for the company, uh, but also for the overall health of the crypto market, that you can build a business that has that kind of diversity of revenue. Because historically, that hasn't been possible. Historically, you know, companies in crypto have really made money in one specific way, and they haven't been very diverse on that front. When you're running a business that makes revenue in one very specific way, you're pretty fragile. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that gets me excited about crypto right now is we're seeing less and less fragility in the crypto space, more depth, more resiliency. And I think that's incredibly important as the market kind of matures and evolves. It's enlightening. It's it's also amazing to see. And I think um, from my perspective, what I, the way that I think about it, I knew Raul has done a lot. Uh, with Real Vision and and crypto uh, as far as, as as a media business. But I think from my perspective, what I'd like to get viewers to hear from you uh, is how you think private crypto will, will evolve from, let's just say, a trading asset to more of a, uh, a medium of exchange, possibly in store value, and how it might interact with um, central bank digital currencies uh, that that we know at least 35 central banks around the world are in various stages of launching their own CBDCs, uh, with China being, I think, the most operative uh, sovereign focused on on launching some version of a CBDC by literally by next year. We're in March of 2021. They're talking about uh, by Q3, Q4 of 22 getting it launched. How do you think about the interplay? How do you think about a sovereign CBDC as it relates to private crypto? And how do you think those two things are either going to coexist or clash? You know, I think that, um, I don't think that they'll clash that much in the sense that today in the normal financial market, you have a lot of state-issued assets. So, you know, treasuries, U.S. treasuries, treasuries from every major country, currencies. You also have a lot of private assets, Apple stock, Google stock, what have you, gold, um, silver bullion, whatever. So, financialization of the oil market, which you guys down in Texas are pretty good at, you know, and and so I don't actually think that the coexistence of like privately created crypto assets and state created crypto assets is a big problem. I think the bigger coming battle is actually between the different financial systems in the world, you know, and you basically, you you and I have some daylight on this, but, you know, I basically see the world as a, you know, Western financial system kind of dominated by the U.S., uh, a financial system, you know, system dominated by the CCP, a Huala system, you know, from the uh, Middle East, and then the crypto system. And I think that to the extent that China is able to use the underlying technology to make their system more efficient and increase their capital velocity, uh, that's probably a bigger problem for the Western-led financial system than any kind of privately issued crypto asset. And I think when you're in this market, you're kind of pretty aware that, frankly, the U.S. is very far behind. You know, the U.S. has an amazing private sector, but the private sector has been pretty hampered by a lack of regulatory clarity. Uh, and in China, not only do they have regulatory clarity, they have state support for these projects. 
which is is huge in the Chinese market, as you know. And so I think the U.S. has fallen pretty far behind in the financial technology space, just like it's fallen far behind in the machine learning and and you know biotech space as well. Um, I'm hopeful, you know, though that like I'm always a big uh, believer in America and, and in the West. I'm pretty hopeful that this administration will give some regulatory clarity and allow private sector to get back to work. You know, this morning, uh, it's March 10th, we announced that we just added Jim Messina to our board of directors. Jim is, uh, you know, worked with Obama for about 15 years and ran the largest Biden super PAC. And, you know, he and I have known each other for quite some time and we kind of sat down recently and we were talking about regulatory and he really believes that this is the administration that will get a comprehensive framework out of. And I'm pretty excited to, to work on that with him. But as it stands today, the U.S. is pretty far behind. Well, first of all, uh, adding Jim was a great, uh, a great addition to blockchain. Jim's a longtime friend of mine as well. Uh, and um, probably one of the best single Democratic operatives there is. So a very, very shrewd move on your part there. You know, as it relates to China being ahead of the U.S., uh, Peter, you and I have worked behind the scenes on some initiatives with, um, let's say, uh, U- U.S. Uh, uh, cabinet members and, and agencies that how they're looking at these particular issues. And when we look at China today, when you look at the RMB, their unit of currency, if you look at the SWIFT data, only about 1.8% of global cross-border settlements happen in RMB. And if you even drill down a little further on that, it's China's uh, cross-border settlement with Hong Kong, which isn't really a cross-border settlement anymore now that they've taken over Hong Kong uh, and eliminated their uh, democracy. So uh, no one really trusts China. Uh, No one trusts their currency. And China, for all intents and purposes, has to use dollars to operate around the world. Given the fact that China might be ahead of the US in AI and robotics and a few other things they might have stolen to get there, they might have invested in R&D in, and also procured some of that uh, capabilities from somewhere else. But when you look at their currency uh, and China's economic reach with their currency, it doesn't exist in the world today. They have to have dollars, dollars, euros, yen, and pounds to operate. It's primarily dollars. So, how do you think about uh, China's uses? You know, China happens to be one of the largest Bitcoin miners in the world. How do you think their impact on crypto per se, uh, a private crypto? might evolve over the next one, two, three years. I know it's impossible to look much further than that, but how do you see China reacting with, interacting today with private crypto? And does blockchain.com uh, have Chinese accounts? How do you, how do you think about China's uh, activity in, in private crypto? Yeah, you know, it's hard to tell because so much of China is state-owned or state-connected enterprise or you know, senior CCP members that are profiting off of the private sector. It's been really difficult to get a sense for like how much is CCP versus just people of power in the CCP first, you know, and so it's kind of a murky world. Blockchain.com doesn't do business in mainland China. We do business in Hong Kong. Which is now mainland China. Yeah, and we, and we have to decide what we're going to do about that in the long run. But, yeah. um, you know, historically we've done business in Hong Kong and we've... Uh, not done business inside mainland China. And that's for a variety of reasons. I think that for us, we've seen a lot of American tech companies go into China, compete with Chinese backed, and it never ends well. You know, Uber is a good example of that. That was part of it. The other part of it was um, 
you know, we're very conservative when it comes to regulatory and it's very hard to, you know, get to the provenance of some of these flows inside China. Uh, and so, you know, as a risk factor, it's probably easier to leave that market on off the table. I think in terms of their impact on the private market, it's probably less and less now that you have some of these really large institutions involved. Like at the end of the day, like the purchases that Elon Musk companies made, like dwarf anything going on in China right now at this exact moment. So it's probably becoming less as the US market heats up. And then, you know, one of the things that blockchain.com does is we're probably the largest provider of project finance capital in the space of debt. And we've financed, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, nearing a billion of dollars, you know, worth of mining production capacity in the West now. That's something I feel pretty strongly about, you know, financing capacity in Europe and in, in the United States, just as a way of making the system more resilient. And that capacity is coming online over the next six months. And so I think that you probably saw the all-time high of hashing power in China as a percentage uh, probably a year ago. Um, now, you know, we have a lot of capital, the Chinese government has more capital. So, you know, if they want to engage in a hash rate war, you know, versus us, they're going to win, of course. Um, but so far it hasn't looked like they will. And the thing that actually constrains mining hash rate is not capital. It's access to Silicon, which is mostly a Singaporean and Taiwanese issue. Yeah. Ironically. I think that's pretty good news for, for the crypto market overall. Yeah. And how do you think the Chinese government thinks about private crypto? And let's just, let's just use Bitcoin as private crypto at 70% of the market. Um, how do you think a sovereign government thinks about its constituents, its, its population, especially in a command and control economy? How do you think they think about private crypto? I mean, again, I have no idea, but I have my own views. Uh, what are your views? I don't know. I'm so mixed on that one. I'm kind of curious to hear what your view is. I mean, you know, if you're if you're an authoritarian government uh, and you are trying to really keep the narrative uh, tight in your own country, as they do, uh, and also keep your population compliant with um, with everything that you want done, um, I would think that private crypto is probably something that uh, the elite will use to illicitly get their money out of China uh, into, you know, let's just say uh, more friendly foreign jurisdictions uh, in case they fall out of favor in, in the CCP. Uh, but I think for the for the masses, if I were the Chinese government, um, right, we wouldn't allow private crypto. Right? It's more of a democratically uh, organized, um, you know, decentralized private uh, currency. And again, for any sovereign nation, and this we can get into how how the West is going to think about it going forward. For any sovereign nation to think about allowing private crypto to replace its own sovereign currency, if there's kind of a there, there's there there's a schism there because uh, whether you look at the U.S. or Europe or or any of the G7, private crypto is this kind of um, it's a play toy right now. It's it's a trillion dollar play toy. Uh, it was once a hundred billion dollar play toy recently, uh, but here we are at a trillion dollars worth of, of market cap or more for the whole private crypto space. It's becoming real, right? And your business is becoming real in a very uh, amazing way. Uh, and now private crypto is becoming real. So this question is going to come across 
um, administrations, whether it's the US, whether it's Europe, whether it's China, they'll all look at it differently. But how do you think the West is going to either embrace or fight or allow? How do you think the, the, the West is going to think about private crypto as it becomes more relevant because of its size? I think the US and what makes the West great is our belief in the private market in the free market, right? And so, um, you know, financial systems have changed a lot over the course of American history. That's one of the things that's made the U.S. competitive, actually, is our financial systems and our financial markets and our ability to tolerate change in them. It, it's kind of a question of elite capture, though, because most of the American political elite today is connected to the current financial system in America in some way or the other. And when anytime you have a wholesale shift, there's going to be winners and losers. And so I could see there being, and there certainly is some degree of, of capture from the current financial system, which we can call Tradfin, of the you know, sort of elite political system in America. And so the question is, and will become, do we really believe in the free market, you know, in letting the best financial system win, the best financial products win? Or are we going to revert to like a state planned model and, you know, regulate this new system out of existence? And I think that's going to be an interesting question, not just for a company like mine in, in our industry, but a question that's interesting about the future of America. And one of the things that troubles me is like the American economy is more planned today than it's ever been. And that slow shift towards state planning I think is really dangerous from not just a human freedom perspective, but from a competitiveness perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what will happen as crypto gets bigger and bigger. What I hope happens is that the incumbents in finance decide that it's a great opportunity, you know, to build better businesses and better products for their customers. And we all kind of compete together. Like I hope to be competing with JP Morgan three or four years from now. Mm -hmm could see the opposite thing happen as it becomes bigger it becomes more relevant it becomes more of a of a front burner issue for the secretary of the treasury in the u.s right for the for the european financial ministers again the more prolific the more ubiquitous it becomes the more of an issue it is for everyone and um, this is something that no one's really had to think about before and you know i would expect more friction than we've seen so far as it gets larger. And with the imposition of CBDCs around the world, uh, or the release of CBDCs around the world, um, I think they're going to be forced to think about um, private crypto versus CBDC uh, currencies and, and how that kind of symbiosis or friction uh, might happen between them. So, uh, you know, adding, adding great political operatives to your organization, I think, is, is going to be key to growing it over time, or at least dealing with whatever kind of regulatory blowback there might be uh, with private crypto. Because look, in the end, you know, this is something that was created, uh, you know, by a, a white paper, uh, uh, an anonymous guy, and in uh, a, a group of um, wizards uh, of, of algorithm and algorithms and math that developed this this uh, this network. And I think that in it has its own uh, problems as far as uh, economic uh, certainty is concerned from the perspective of sovereign nations. Again, if you, it's easy, it's easier to put yourself in the shoes of Peter Smith than it is to put yourself in the shoes of 
whoever the Treasury Secretary is in the United States and how they think about uh, regulating something that's becoming so important to a new generation of investors, right? And I think you said you're going to compete with JP Morgan. I can't imagine JP Morgan's going to be a functional competitor in crypto when you have such a huge uh, lead and are building out capital markets the way that the incumbents used to build out capital markets in your space. It'll be pretty tough for them to compete, really, honestly, because, you know, internally, the projection is that we'll, so we serve 33 million customers today. You know, those are uh, not wallets, but actually verified customers. So like, that's the same kind of metric you'd compare against a bank. Yeah. And, you know, when we look at the internal projections, because we're getting more efficient over time, not less, we'll probably be able to serve a billion customers with about 1,300 employees. You know, JP Morgan headcount today is, you know, they're, they're probably serving 100 million customers at most, maybe 70. And their headcount is an order of magnitude higher than that. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't actually think there'll be a phenomenal competitor in the future at providing crypto-enabled financial services. Yeah. I think the big question will be four or five years from now, you know, when Roblox, which is going public today, goes, you know, the next Roblox four years from now goes public, will they be going public inside the crypto capital market with us? Or will they be going public with NICE and, you know, JP Morgan and Goldman? I think that'll be the interesting question four years from now. It's like which capital system, which financial system do companies and people use to do their financial services? But I don't think it'll be possible for JP to compete with us inside of the crypto space. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I agree with you, but I think I think your the principal issue around all private crypto and, and, and as it relates to blockchain or or, or Coinbase or any of the other uh, you know but lesser competitors of yours uh, behind you and, and Coinbase, I think is how these sovereigns think about private crypto and how they I. They might uh, put enough uh, roadblocks or speed bumps in place just to slow down the meteoric growth uh, of, of the asset class, because again, it's actually starting to threaten sovereignty. And as you've seen, some countries are even deciding to adopt it as a, as a sovereign currency, which is you know, uh, a head scratcher for me. If I, were, if I were running a country, I would never adopt it as their sovereign currency. I may allow it to exist or coexist with my currency, but um, I think the, the manner in which sovereigns decide to deal with private crypto is going to be your chief issue. Your chief issue actually isn't going to be competition. I think you guys uh, are leaps and bounds uh, ahead of everyone else. And, you know, having having guys like you and Charlie Nagara and your business, um, you know, you kind of have a dream team of people running these things. When you think about Bitcoin, again, I say Bitcoin, uh, you know, more ubiquitously for private crypto. When you look at Bitcoin and you look at your personal net worth, Peter, uh, outside of your ownership of blockchain, which is is going to be spectacular in the future, how do you allocate your personal assets today when you think about uh, your 
financial assets, whether it be a house, whether it be savings, whether it be investment, how do you think about crypto versus call it uh, operating companies around the world, stocks or private companies? I actually don't own any real estate. I'm well over 95% allocated into the crypto market. In your private capital outside of your ownership of blockchain? Yeah. Wow. Look, when you find a good trade, you just try to get behind it some more. I tell you, and and um, the daily, the fluctuations daily don't seem to phase you um, at all. Well, I, I think there's a kind of interesting way to think about that, which is that, you know, there were a few things that I wanted to take care of in my life financially, um, and I took care of those things. Part of that was like, you know, setting aside whatever to take care of family members or people that relied on me, and those assets were set aside outside of my name a long time ago. And so, you know, once you had that done, the reality is I'm a really young guy. I'm in my early 30s. I don't have a family. I don't have any dependents. Um, and I love building companies and investing. And so, you know, if I was wiped out, I have just enough capital set aside that I feel like I could re I could rebuild and would enjoy that journey actually. Uh, and so for me at this point in life, it's quite fine. The other reality is like, you know, I had, I was less divert, like allocated into crypto ahead of the financial crisis. I was actually holding cash. And, you know, then there was a moment in time where everything in the market was down uh, really hard. There was no liquidity in the market. You know, there was no buy side and equities. I mean, you were trading the market then too. You're talking March of 2020 at that point yeah. in time. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, those positions are looking great right now. And so I'm not trying to exit anything. Um, you know, the last thing is like, I live a reasonable life. Uh, I don't have a lot of things that I, I need money for or want money for. Uh, and so, you know, you just kind of want to keep backing stuff that you really believe in. Just wait till you have a wife. You're going to, you're going to find things <laughs> that you're going to need a lot of money for, unfortunately. <laughs> oh man, I know, I know. I'm going to do, you know, and then kids. And, you know, it's, uh, but right now, yeah, 95% plus crypto. All right, let's let's go to the let's go to the darker areas of crypto that I think we all have to deal with at some point in time and talk about in your mind how you think about the the bad guys. We all know in exploding markets there are going to be uh, great people in great places. There are also going to be nefarious characters that are always trying to leverage the system's strengths for their um, ill ill will or their malicious deeds. So talk about the the bad guys using crypto and, and how how you think uh, they're being dealt with today and, and how when you look at Janet Yellen or Christine Lagarde or some of the other public statements that we've seen about crypto kind of being a sunny place for shady people as the, the, the stewards of these networks, how do you think about uh, how they should be policed and what the bad guys are doing. Yeah, look, I think it's really tough to police a lot of this stuff, you know, in the sense that you have a very liquid, you know, market. It's very extremely global. And I think it's, it's tough to really police things. Um, and so I don't, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for the regulator, ironically, um, because it is just really, really tough work that they're, that they're engaged in. I think the thing though that for us that we think about a lot is like, what can we do? Like what's our personal responsibility? And for us, that means having a really strict, you know, KYC and transaction monitoring program, as well as being thinking really carefully about what kind of reputational risk we take when we interact with the client. So you know, even if the client is not, 
you know, a KYC or a transaction monitoring risk. It's like, how does this client's reputation impact the firm? And, you know, we've had a lot of business that we've turned down, not because it was not lawful, but because we didn't feel like we wanted to be their partner in the crypto space. And that's everything from, you know, shady folks like you would think of. We've also turned down a fair amount of business uh, from the sort of uh, hedge fund community um, mm. because a lot of the hedge funds that originally got involved, you know, were funds that had previously had problems around insider trading. And, you know, they're calling you up to be like, well, you know, we want to trade, but we want to know what's going on in the market. We want market color. And you're like, sure you know and not sure as in we'll give it to you but like you know sure as in like yeah i know what you're asking for and so uh we've turned down a, a lot of business over the years uh, to, on that basis to be clear that was not my firm <laughs> <laughs> no, to be clear that was not that was not kyle uh yes. you know kyle you guys are investors in the cap table so a little different i think that that's something that i wish more people in crypto spend more time thinking about is like just because it's not illegal or just because it's a good piece of revenue doesn't mean that it's how we should be building the market together. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I wish there was more thoughtfulness across the industry about that. I guess what, what I want to focus on is, you know, we, we've all, we all know what happened in the Silk Road uh, with Ross and, and then all the players that ended up behind him. And when I think about ransomware and I think about, some of these companies that have been that have been held hostage with a particular ransomware, or you get into you know the illicit trade of drugs or you know guns or whatever. When you get into the real bad guys, how are those transactions uh, followed? How are the bitcoins followed? Because when you talk to law enforcement, how do you, do you help law enforcement? How do you work with them? Yeah, so we do. We do help law enforcement. We have a whole team of blockchain that responds to law enforcement requests. Uh, okay. which is kind of a normal thing when you get larger. I think though that most of that flow doesn't come from through, through us because like we're known as like not a place that's a good idea to do that. Right. Uh, and like the internet tutorials teaching you how to do it and <laughs> tell you to use other places. I think though that what we see a lot of lately that we've been working pretty hard on is people scamming people, particularly old people. So mm -hmm. for example, we did something that generated a lot of unpopularity on in the internet uh, from customers, but saved a lot of people money, which was we have a machine learning model that like basically predicts if you're about to be scammed and then shuts down withdrawals from your account. And essentially it goes like this, you know, someone on the internet convinces an elderly person, uh, you know, 55 or older that, you know, if they invest uh, Bitcoin in this product, though, you know, they're going to make 10% returns a day or whatever. And so the, the person who wants to invest in it is usually actually angry with us for not letting them <laughs> fund the scam investment. Mm -hmm. uh, but we set up video calls with them and we walk them through the whole thing and we explain it and, and do the, you know, really do the Lord's work on education. So we see a lot of that kind of stuff more than we do like, you know, someone's doing dark market stuff. Okay. So yeah, that's kind of the, that's, you're, you're saying that you're, you've been very active in kind of the fraud prevention just like your credit cards, you know, if they see your credit cards being used in various places too quickly or things that you don't normally buy, um, my credit card company just shuts them off. Uh, and it's actually, for me, I like it. You know, I call the office and say, hey, tell them I'm actually here and I'm actually doing this or, 
or I'm and not. Just keeping users safe. And I'm happy that that they turned them off. Um, so I think that's great that you're that you're doing that. And I think from the FBI's perspective in the U.S. Uh, and in the DOJ's perspective, you know what they're trying, following ransomware, following the ability from people to put uh, so much money on a thumb drive with a private key and uh, walk out uh, of of the U.S. without paying tax or stealing things. That, that's going to be something that's just going to have to be, uh, let's just say, more robustly developed in law enforcement and hopefully companies like you guys. I know blockchains never had uh, a serious regulatory infraction and, and or inquiry from either the FSA or uh, the US DOJ. Uh, and so it's it's pretty commendable that you've you've taken the right path. You've done the KYC AML. You guys used, you know, that business used to take a long time to get KYC and AML. And now you guys have cut it to literally a handful of seconds. And that's what everyone in this space needs to do. And, and you're, to your point, you, you don't get interface a lot with the criminals because the criminals go to the unregulated offshore exchanges that don't do uh, KYC AML, right? They kind of cater to the bad guys. Which are mostly run from China. Ah, shocker. Really? Yeah. Who yeah. would have thought? Yeah, it's a surprise. You know, and that's, by the way, tough. You know, like it is tough to compete with uh, folks in a global market where, you know, we are not only are we not, you know, regulated, co- like not only do we have to comply with regulation, but we don't have coherent regulation here in the United States and, you know, in the West generally, you know, whereas in these folks running out of mainland China are just do whatever they want, you know, and a lot cheaper. It's just like competing with China in any other business. Uh, you know, you go to North Africa and you want to do a deal uh, to drill an oil well, you know, the Chinese uh, person's there with a suitcase full of money. And uh, we in the West have to operate uh, with Western norms and values and, and um, global values. And, and the Chinese don't operate with any values, unfortunately. So um, it's that competition that, you're, that you speak of is a competition in every business all around the world with people without uh, you know, morals or values, especially as driven by their, their government. Do you think when you get into KYC AML, do you think that as, US, as the US and Europe impose a more homogenized regulatory environment for private crypto, they're gonna have to. Uh, it, I know you're, you're, uh, you're running to a different standard already a blockchain than, than almost anyone else. You're, you have a much higher standard for your onboarding process and your, and your, your own uh, surveillance. But do you think that we'll get to a point in private crypto where there'll actually be not only KYC AML, but investor suitability questionnaires. You know, when you set up a stock brokerage account today, um, the, the rules stipulate that the brokers themselves must, uh, the clearinghouses, they must fill out investor suitability, i.e. what's your net worth? How much of your net worth, uh, uh, you know, what's your income? How much of that do you intend to invest? Do you think that's coming to crypto? Because today it doesn't really exist. Probably. I think what we're focused on right now is not so much means testing, but building uh, learning tools. Because ultimately, I actually think means testing is really bad for the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, not, like if the, if the regulator tells us we'll have to do it, to be clear, we'll do it in case the legal team's listening. But I think means testing is horrible because it takes people's access away from financial products. 
I think education is important. So, you know, putting people through, like say we start extending margin to people in Florida, putting people through a, you know, educational model on trading with margin. What does it mean? What are the risks? And having them, you know, even take a test at the end to make sure they've really understood the concept, right? Mm. That to me is good for the customer. Mm. Telling people what products they can and can't access it doesn't feel great to me because a lot of times there's a huge synchronousness with telling people that they can't have access to products that folks like you and me use to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Right. And as someone who like came up in the last income bracket and now has access to whatever products, you know, I mean, maybe not whatever, but like certainly access to a lot of products. There's a huge asymmetry in in terms of product access. Right. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is, you know, I've been in the securities business uh, since 1992 and have dealt with all of the regulatory iterations going forward. So when I think about traditional uh, investment banks and brokerage firms, again, as the crypto, private crypto world expands, it may expand to what we deem to be mom and pop. Like say today, we've had millennial and Gen Z adopters. We've had, uh, uh, you know, forward thinking institutions. We, uh, one would say that the people that are involved today in mass are probably highly educated, very focused on um, the architecture of the market, the nuances of the brave new world of private crypto. But as it, as it becomes more ubiquitous, maybe, uh, you know, maybe they're going to be crypto brokers uh, that have to advise moms and pops that might be wanting to set up crypto accounts. All I'm saying is fiduciarily, there's going to be some sort of um, additional uh, scrutiny on uh, or, or regulation set on uh, um, a pat that, that's in addition to KYC AML, you're going to have investor suitability. That doesn't restrict people's access to specific project products. What it does is it talks about not allocating 100% of someone's savings, although you have 95% allocated, but you are very sophisticated, also very wealthy already. But uh, from their perspective, you don't want a retiree uh, setting up an account and thinking that what he should do is put 100% of his retirement money in crypto, right? I mean, and that's, that's what just comes down to education, right? It's like, how do we, yeah, how do we do the education? I think that's the focus for us is like, let's let people make their own choices, but let's give them as much information to make good choices with. Um, That's the same reason that, you know, we were talking about that scam, right? Like at the end of the day, you know, the first time I invested in Bitcoin, it was back before there were markets. It was like, you would message people on a messaging board and be like, yeah, sell me some Bitcoin. And you'd PayPal them. And PayPal shut me down for it. They were like, you can buy these Bitcoins. It is a scam. Uh, And so, you know, we don't, shut their accounts down after we do the video interview with them okay we do the video interview we tell them it's a scam we tell them it's a bad idea that in our view in the view of blockchain.com it is a scam that it's not a safe idea and then some people still fund these scam investments right and i you know i have mixed feelings about it because on one hand you don't want to make the other decisions for them and on the other hand like you know of course like you know bitcoin was not a scam even though PayPal thought it was, and now ironically, you can buy Bitcoin on PayPal. It's really tough. Like, but at the end of the day, the sort of bright light truth inside of blockchain or first principle is let's give people the information to make their own decisions and then, and then trust them to make those decisions. 
All right, we're we're coming up on the hour. I want to get two more things covered. Number one, I'd love for you to be predictive uh, for the next one two years. On say, I want, I want you to give us something that's profound. I'm sure in your in your mind and in your thoughts, you've been thinking about how things are likely to evolve, how different assets in private crypto may be priced differently a year from now. Give me some predictions on where you think. And you can ban them. Where do you where do you think Bitcoin will be? Where do you think Ethereum will be? Where do you think private crypto will be in total value a year or two from now? Um, what what is the Peter Smith view uh, of where what the evolution will look like? Even just a year from now sounds like a light year to me, given the the rapidity and the pace at which uh, things are evolving. So give, give me a, give me a one year view of where all these things are going to be. First of all, this is not an invest. This is not investment advice. No, I don't have any crystal ball about the future. This is, a, this is Peter Smith's guess on how this market's yeah. going to evolve. I am often wrong. At the beginning of this year, I thought, I made a couple of predictions. One of them was that Ethereum would be the best performing crypto, major crypto asset. So if you look at the top five crypto assets, I thought this year Ethereum would be the best performing. Still feel very confident about that. Um, and I said Bitcoin would at some point in 2021 would reach 100K. Okay. Uh, and I still feel great about that. That's, that's, an an aggressive, that's an aggressive prediction. Aggressive, but I like it. I'm really, I don't know. I don't know. We're halfway there. We're halfway there. Now, in terms of where we are a year from now, I think that's really tough. And the reason is, I, can, I know the crypto market, like, you know, I've been in the market so long, I can kind of feel it. Foolishly, I think I can feel it. But <laughs> I think it's so dependent on the macro. Hmm. And there's just things going on in the world today, which frankly, we don't have a model for. We've never seen what happens when you print this many dollars, except in the Weimar Republic, right? So, yeah. and that didn't end well, but I also don't think they had all the tools in the Weimar Republic that we have now to like stabilize the system. So, you know, I think there's a lot of smarter macro minds out there than me on this stuff, but like, there's so much sort of data from outside the crypto ecosystem that now impacts the crypto ecosystem that without having a great view that I'm confident in about the global macro, I think it's hard to know where it goes over a one to two year timeline. Look, having a few predictions on the on the tape are, are solid. And you know, you know I, I understand what you're talking about with the printing press as it relates to the, to the Weimar Republic of Germany, 19, early 1920s. We must remember that, um, Historically, what has happened uh, is is when powers go into war, they both deficit spend going into the war. To the winner goes uh, go the spoils, and to the loser goes defeat and fall. So Weimar, uh, you know, went on a printing spree post -war, the war because they lost, uh, and that's why they wiped themselves out. Today, you know, when you look at the U.S., uh, twenty percent of the money that's in the U.S. system today wasn't there a year ago. And so you're right. There is no playbook uh, for the um, for the absolute level of central bank balance sheet expansion slash money printing uh, that we've seen in the last year. We're going to pass another trillion nine uh, here, maybe in the next few days. And the very next thing you're going to hear is, I think you're going to hear about a three trillion dollar infrastructure bill. So um, oh. you know we're on tilt, and uh, your predictions may end up. Uh, may end up coming true faster than you think. 
the last thing I want to talk about is, you know, uh, we're not going to go into a SPAC conversation, but I do want to talk about uh, Coinbase's file to go public uh, via direct listing. There are gray market transactions happening in Coinbase everywhere between what a hundred billion and $140 billion in enterprise value. Where do you think um, the, the I, I call it the digital brokerage firms, the digital millennial financial service firms like, like yours and Coinbase uh, are, do you think that's expensive? Where do you think it's going to, where do you think it's going to settle out? And how do you think, again, one year from now, will it, will it be blockchain and Coinbase ruling the world or will there be some other um, smaller competitors show up to the game? You guys are so far ahead of everyone else. Um, how do you think the, the landscape of financial services for you guys is going to play out a, a year from now? So first of all, I think I separate the world in crypto into like onshore and offshore. So okay. Coinbase and, and blockchain.com are probably the two largest onshore companies. We definitely are the two largest onshore companies. And we're big fans of them and, and I've known them forever and super excited to see their their offering. I think the thing that's interesting about the two companies is we're just very different in the sense that they are really sort of a consumer sort of classic tech company. Um, most of their revenue is made in one way. I think like 96% of their revenue is made in one way. Right. We are much more like- sure. that's, that's charging retail, essentially. Yeah. yeah, it's, you know, 400 points on every brokerage trade. So it's it's four four percent on brokerage trades. What where should that be, Peter? I mean, uh, over time. In the long run, forty yeah, basis points. Okay, yeah, it can't it can't stay where. Yeah, we are much more of a financial firm in the sense that we you know run capital markets, do project finance, trade, repo, and consumer repo. Yeah, you guys are doing everything uh, Goldman Sachs and and the rest of the 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 traditional investment banks do in traditional financial services. For sure. Their business is, um, it's probably closest to like E-Trade or TDA. Okay. And our business is closest to probably JP Morgan in the sense that it's, it is very Goldman-esque because of the ex-Goldman folks, but we have a giant retail presence. And so yeah. the two businesses are just very different. And so it'd be interesting to see how they trade. Uh, and then in terms of us, like eventually we will be public uh, in some market. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how we trade. But yeah. I don't really see a lot of smaller competitors making a run at us just because of a lot of the structural advantages we have. The real question is, can the onshore guys hold off the offshore guys? Right. Because uh, the big advantage that we have, of course, is that we can get banking. The big disadvantage that we have is that we, it takes us longer to roll out products because we're regulated. So mm -hmm. that'll be the big question is you know to what extent can we continue to compete with them i had one prediction question for you uh what's real inflation at the end of this year huh. uh well you know you can look at the real economy you can look at how it's calculated right by how the cpi calculates inflation or you can look at asset prices right so i think we're going to see a a good old-fashioned inflationary move um, you know, you look at copper wire, you look at crude, you look at um, lumber, you look at food, um, and even wages. You're, you know, we already had wages growing in a nice clip pre the Chinese pandemic. Uh, and now um, I think you're going to see wage inflation north of 3%. So, you know, when you look at how the CPI is calculated 
versus what real inflation is. You use the word real. Um, I mean, in, in the absolute sense, I, I think we'll easily see uh, mid single digit inflation numbers across the board. And, um, you know, we all know uh, that whether you look at the US, Japan or Europe, given the amount of on balance sheet debt now, uh, we can't allow uh, our rates to move very much. You know, we've had our five year rates move from close to zero uh, to up to about 75 basis points, uh, somewhere around there. Um, our, our 30 year rate has moved from 1% to about 2.3%. Um, I don't think they can move much more, Peter, and I don't think we can. I don't think we can afford to let short rates move, given the amount of short-term debt on balance sheet. So we're going to run inflation hot uh, for a while. Think about this, right? We'll it we'll be at three and a half percent unemployment by the end of the year, three and a half four percent unemployment by the end of the year. We're going to expand our central bank balance sheet by God knows how much this year, at least two trillion, maybe more. We're going to we're going to engage in a three trillion dollar infrastructure program, and we're coming to herd immunity uh, with this with this uh, virus here in the next couple of months. So uh, I think I think hold on to your seat. You're going to see you're going to actually see real inflation uh, by the end of this year. Wow. Well, it's certainly going to be a wild year. I'm excited for it. It is definitely going to be a wild year. So thanks for donating so much of your time to this discussion. Um, I think the people in, in the crypto world and even in the non-crypto world that, that spend a lot of time on Real Vision are going to really enjoy hearing your thoughts uh, and actually putting a, putting a name with a face. You're kind of uh, someone that people know of but don't even know what, what you look like. And uh, I think this is going to be uh, uh, something good for you. And uh, let's maybe, maybe by the end of the year, let's do this again. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll do a recap next January at some point in time and maybe... Uh, Let's be in some Caribbean destination together. We'll do some more spearfishing. I would love that. Thanks, Kyle. Right. Peter, Kyle. thanks for time. Thanks, everyone. And I uh, look forward to uh, seeing Peter again six, nine months from now. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.